0: Transforming the daily grind, infusing passion into practice, it is neither work nor play, purpose nor purposelessness that satisfies us. It is the dance between. As she put the finishing touches on her application, a teenager named Evelyn Glennie felt butterflies in her stomach. Growing up on a farm in Scotland, she had dreamed of becoming a musician. She was drawn to the rhythm of the sounds around her the beat of the tractor the low hum of the cows the clanging of the blacksmiths the rustless the rustling of the trees in the wind after four years honing her percussion skills and several more practicing the piano evelyn felt ready she applied to one of the most prestigious conservatories in the united kingdom the royal academy of music accepted only the cream of the crop alumni included elton john and annie lennox when evelyn arrived in the London of her audition, she had 20 minutes to demonstrate her skills. She played the overture or to William Tell on the timpani, various, piece, various pieces on the snare drum and the xylophone and a Mozart sonata on the piano. The Academy didn't accept her. Multiple expert panelists voiced concerns about a lack of ability. They concluded she had no hope of making it as a professional musician less than a decade later evelyn became the world's first full time percussion soloist normally drummers are in the musicians c- crowd's flock to see they play in the background of an orchestra or band like ringo sitting in the shadow of the john and paul but evelyn was so talented that when she toured the whole, when she to- uh, toured the world alone she routinely sold out 100 concerts a year she won 3 grammy awards for best classical instrumental solo as well as the best Chamber music performance and best classical crossover album. She performed with uh, Bjork, played on uh, Sesame Street, and been knighted by the Queen. In 2015, she was the first percussionist to win the Polar Music Prize, the musical equivalent of a Nobel Prize, joining the company of Elton John, Yo Yo Ma, Paul mccartney Joni, michelle paul simon bruce springsteen and steve wonder when the royal academy of the music decided that evelyn was lacking in ability they weren't wrong technically she didn't have an ear for music she couldn't really hear it at all the world's first and the finest solo percussionist is profoundly deaf evelyn sears had begun failing her when she was 8. By the time she was 12, when people spoke to her, she could barely make out a sound. An audiologist diagnosed her with the degenerating nerves and said it would be impossible for her to play music. The degree of difficulty was too high and the distance to travel too far. Being profoundly deaf made mastering music unusually hard work, but Evelyn didn't slave over scales for endless cheerless hours, her school's percussion teacher, Ron Forbes, didn't push her through a tedious practice schedule of drills. They worked together to create a scaffolding for her to enjoy the process of learning. When Evelyn first visited Ron, she asked. he asked how she would hear music. She had no choice but to adopt a different learning style. She explained that although she couldn't hear uh, all the different pitches, With her ears, she could feel the vibrations in her arms, her stomach, her cheekbones and her scalp. She started to think of her body as a giant ear. Played the timpani. Evelyn put her hands on the wall, learning to associate different pitches with different body parts. Some of the higher notes resonated around her face and neck. The lower notes mostly reverberated in the, her legs and feet. She started practicing barefoot to feel the vibrations more intensely. At the start of every lesson, Evelyn relished the challenge of sensing the sounds. As she gained mastery, Ron narrowed the pitch intervals. She was like leveling up in a video game. She was making increasingly fine distinctions between notes using her, using, uh, only her fingertips. Soon, Ron was stalking her enthusiasm by giving her a whole new set of challenges to master see this piece by back do you think you can play it on a snare drum continually wearing the task and raising the bar made learning a joy there was never a distinction between fun and hard work she tells me i was like a sponge she went on to develop her own versions of back's music in contemporary drum style we weren't we often we are often told that if uh, We want to develop our skills. We need to push ourselves through long hours of monotonous practice. But the best way to unlock hidden potential is not to suffer through the daily grind. It's to transform the daily grind into a source of daily joy. It's not a coincidence that in music, the term for practice is play. Getting in harmony, if you want to become an expert in any field, it's not enough to be freak of nature. No one is born with the innate ability to play Amazing Grace on the backpipes, uh, pull a bubbling baked Alaska out of the oven, jungle seven balls, juggle seven balls at a time, or even spell words like onomatopoeia and mayonnaise. It takes practice to master a skill. Ever since the notion of achieving mastery through 10,000 hours of practice took the world by storm, coaches, parents, and teachers have been fascinated by a particular kind of practice. Deliberate practice is the structured repetition of the task to improve performance based on clear goals and immediate feedback. How much of that you need, however, is more uh, uh, non-said than the... 10,000 hours idea would have us believe. Research reveals that the actual number of hours required for excellence varies dramatically by person and activity. What What's clear is that deliberate practice is particularly valuable for improving skills in predictable tasks with consistent moves, swinging a golf club, solving a Rubik's cube, or playing a violin. Even child prodigies have been known to dedicate long obsessive hours to deliberate practice Mozart's violinist father put him through rigorous drills and a performance schedule so uh, so grueling that one biographer called it unconditional slavery but that kind of fanatical practice takes a toll Mozart wrote letters about how drained he felt confessing as a teenager that my fingers are aching aching from composing so many rectitatives and in his late 20s that he was tired from so much performing there's a reason to believe that he succeeded in spite of the compulsive practice not because of it research demonstrates that people who are obsessed with their work put in longers are yet failed to perform any better than their peers they are more likely to fall victim of both physical and emotional exhaustion the monotony of deliberate practice puts them at risk of burnout and for bore out yes bore out is an actual term in psychology whereas burnout is the emotional exhaustion that accumulates when you are overloaded bore out is the emotional deadening you feel when you are under stimulated, although it takes deliberate practice to achieve greater things, we shouldn't drill so hard that we drive the joy out of the activity and turn it into an obsessive slog. In a study of concert pianists who attained International acclaim before turning 40. Few were obsessed with their craft. In their early years, most practiced the piano only by hour a day. They weren't raised by slave drivers or drill surgeons. Their parents responded to their intrinsic motivation with enthusiasm as they became teenagers. They steadily increased their daily effort, but it didn't become an obsession or a core. Show sure, a core. They practice because they were interested in what they were doing. Psychologist Lauren Sosnag explains and because they enjoyed working with the teacher. Elite musicians are rarely driven by obsessive compulsion. They are usually fueled uh, by what psychologists call harmonious passion. Harmonious passion is taking joy in a process rather than feeling pressure to achieve an outcome. You are no longer practicing another specter of should. I should be studying. I am supposed to practice. You are drawn into a web of want. I feel like studying, I'm excited to practice that makes it easier to find flow. You slip quickly into the zone of total absorption where the world melts away and you become one of your instrument. Instead of controlling your life, practicing enriches your life. The importance of passion isn't unique to music. Across 127 studies, with over 45,000 people, persistence was more likely to translate into the performance when passion was present. The question is how to build and scaffolding to bring that passion into practice. My favorite answer is called deliberate play. Progress is I have to, I want to. Play-by-play play. Deliberate play is a structured activity that's designed to make skill development enjoyable. It blends elements to deliberate practice and free play. Like free play, deliberate play uh, Deliberate play is fun, but it's structured for learning and mastery along with recreation. It's built to break complex tasks into simpler parts so you can hone a specific skill. When I asked Evelyn Glennie how she practices, she said she spends nearly all her time in deliberate play. When she gets bored, she switches instruments gracefully, bouncing back and forth between different percussion tools. If I am trying to stay interested in a new marimba skill, I will transfer it to a drum kit, she tells me. Mixing it up breaks up the monotony and keeps her passion in harmony. There is absolutely no routine, she says, laughing that spells hostage to me. Deliberate play often involves introducing novelty and variety into practice that can be in the ways... You learn, the tools you use, the goals you set, and the people with whom you interact. Depending on the skill you are trying to build, deliberate play might take the form of a game, a role play, or an improvise, improvisational exercise. When I first read, read, the, read the research on deliberate play, it opened my eyes to the possibility of bringing harmonious passion into any kind of skill practice. I started wondering if I could transform the grind in more traditional job training in an experiment with Healthcare professionals, my colleagues, and I found that their burnout dropped after we nudged them to inject a bit of deliberate play into their most stressful tasks. An allergy nurse started introducing herself as Nurse Quick Shot, which immediately put her young patients at ease. She let them time her, and when they came back for their next visit, they would ask for Nurse Quick Shot and challenge her to beat her previous time. There's a movement to bring deliberate play into professional development. Medical schools have started offering improvisational comedy courses to bring levity into the challenge of learning to interpret nonverbal cues. In one exercise, foreign movie students watch their classmates shout out nonsense words and try to decipher their meaning by observing their gesture and facial expression students report that along with being enjoyable deliberate play makes them better doctors and the initial evidence in encouraging is encouraging after these kinds of improved sessions were added to a communication course in pharmacy schools, students performed better on patient examinations they were bitter better equipped to identify a patient chief complaint and empathize with the patient's concerns these benefits aren't limited to healthcare in some sales classes students were invited to learn through playing the role of salesperson and customer. In one exercise, the customer would walk up holding a box and a salesperson would ask what was in it with the objective of keeping the conversation going for three minutes without skipping a beat. Over the next month when they were sent to sell tickets for a professional sports team, the students who practiced in this role-play exercise sold 43% more tickets than a control group of students who had not completed this training they also enjoyed the course more the scaffolding for deliberate scale play is often set up by a teacher or coach but it's possible to make real strides on your own if you want to improve your sight reading at the piano you would challenge yourself to see how many notes you get right on a new pieces and track your progress week by week if you are a scrabble player hoping to improve your anagram aptitude You can practice drawing random sets of tiles and see how many words you can spell in a minute. Deliberate play has become especially popular in sports. Extensive evidence shows that athletes who specialize early in a single sport tend to peak quickly and then flame out. Pounding the pavement from a young age puts them a greater at greater risk for both physical and mental health challenges. With deliberate play, it's easier to sustain enjoyment and achieve greater things. In sports, deliberate play is typically organized uh, around the subcomponent of performance or match. In tennis, for example, you might hone your serving serving skills by challenging yourself to see how many consecutive serves you can make. <clears throat> Success might be defeating an opponent outdoing yourself or beating the clock. You are not counting your hours, you are tracking your improvement. Your score is not a symbol of victory, it's a gorge of progress. In a small experiment in Brazil, sports psychologists compared deliberate play and deliberate practice as strategies for teaching basketball to young players. Some of the athletes spend over half their training time in deliberate practice. Their coaches took them through dribbling passing and shooting drills with regular feedback with and without defenders. The remaining athletes spent nearly three-quarters of their training time in the deliberate play to develop their skills. Their coaches designed games instead of drills. Sometimes players had a teammate who was allowed to pass but not shoot. Other times, they played at a disadvantage, one against two or three against four. Several months later, the psychologists tested the basketball intelligence and creativity of both groups, measuring their ability to move to open spots on the court and make passes that eluded defenders. It was deliberate play, not deliberate practice that propelled significant improvement. By fueling harmonious passion, deliberate play can prevent bore-out and burn-out. Although it might sound similar to gamification, deliberate Play is fundamentally different. Gamification is often a gimmick, an attempt to add bells and whistles to a tedious task. The aim is to offer a dopamine rush that distracts from boredom or staffs of exhaustion. Sure, a leaderboard might motivate you to push through the pain, but it's not enough to trick you into liking a routine you hate. In deliberate play, you actually redesign the task itself to make it both motivating and developmental. The best example I've seen was dreamed up by a basketball trainer. Out of practice as soon as i read about brandon payne philosophy of practice i had to call him when brandon was growing up in the charlotte suburbs his dreams were were dominated by basketball as the son of a basketball coach he learned the fundamentals early after spending afternoons evenings and weekends shootings hoops on his driveway he became a sharpshooter known as swishing free throws and draining three-pointers but after arriving at Wingate University, with aspirations to walk onto the basketball team, Brandon ran into a problem when he was an open spot. He couldn't beat his opponents to it. When he faked to one side and dribbled to the other, they stayed with him. Eventually, Brandon's game hit a wall, and he was told him, <clears throat> and he was told his basketball career was over. It crushed me. Brandon. Brandon laments. There's no worse feeling than someone telling you are done when you are still love to play. Although Brandon loved to play when it came to developing skills beyond shooting, he didn't love to practice, to leave defenders in the dust and create his own shot. He needed to work on his quickness and agility. I was limited athletically, he admitted, he admits and I didn't do the things I needed to do. He didn't do the necessary sprints to build his speed, the essential stretching exercises to boost his flexibility or the required drills to improve his footwork. Brandon transitioned to coaching. Now he had to motivate the athletes to do some of the same drills he had avoided. They loathed the wheezing exhaustion of full court, sprints that burned their bodies and the repetitive humdrum of footwork exercise that bored their minds like Brandon. They loved to shoot. But that harmonious passion didn't spill over into the dullest drills. It seemed to make them even duller. The joy of jump shots intensified the dread of endless dribbling. Passion for one task can lead us to neglect the less exciting ones on our plate. It's a pattern I have demonstrated in research with a former student. Jihai Shin, in one study of Korean salespeople, we found that the more they loved their favorite task in their job, the worse they performed at their least favorite task. We replicated that effect is an experiment giving people the boring task of copying names and numbers from a phone book. They made more, they made more errors if we had randomly assigned them. watch fascinating YouTube videos first. The contrast between the two tasks made the data entry even more mind numbing. Practice involves multiple skills and it's rare to love them all. Brandon started looking for ways to work harmonious passion into every element of practice. Although he couldn't subtract the pain from drills, he could Add pleasure to the process, instead of trying to push players through the most pushing parts of practice, he was going to reimagine practice to pull them in. I wanted to create a system to make sure no players would fall victim to what I created for myself. Brandon reflects he would build the scaffolding to help athletes reach their potential by harnessing their love of the game. In 2009, Brandon set up a training center for basketball players. One day, he crossed paths with a young NBA player whose weaknesses had been readily apparent to scouts. One wrote that he was extremely limited by his poor physical tools, another lamented he does have, he doesn't have the size, the strength, or the lateral quickness, athleticism. He probably is never going to end up being a star in the league because of a lack of explosiveness. Brandon recognized some of his own shortcomings in the player and handed him. His business card. They started working together the next morning in his first full season after training with Brandon. The player set the NBA record for most three pointer made. A few years later, he was named the NBA's most valuable player to back to back seasons. His name is Stephen Curry. Changing the game Stephen, uh, Steph Curry is widely regarded as the best shooter in NBA history. It's often said that what Michael Jordan did for the slam dunk. Curry has done for the three-pointer. He's revolutionized the sport by turning it into a mark, marksmanship contest. The two previous record holders for the most three-pointers in a career took over 1,300 games to set their standards. Curry eclipsed them in just 789 games. Despite being the son of an NBA player, Curry didn't get a single scholarship offer from the top college basketball programs. Coming out of high school, he was massively underrated. On a five-star scale, he was branded as only a three-star recruit. The summer before his senior year, the coach at Davidson College went to see him play. He was awful. He threw the ball into the stands. He dropped passes. He dribbled off his foot. He missed shots. The coach recalls, But never ever once during that game did he blame an official or point a finger or at a teammate. He was always cheering from the bench and he never flinched that stuck with me. Those weren't the first signs of Curry's character skills. When he was a kid hanging around with his father's team, one of the players noticed that Curry was like a little sponge, soaking up information everywhere. He went in high school, even when he was struggling, he had the determination to support his team and the discipline to keep his cool, but research suggests that the people with the most discipline actually use the least amount of it. My colleague Angela Duckworth finds that instead of relying on willpower to push through a strenuous situation, they change the situation to make it less strenuous. A clear example comes from research on the marshmallow test. It's one of the most famous and the most understood studies in the history of psychology. You are probably familiar with the classic version. Psychologists put a marshmallow on a plate and told four-year-olds that if they could wait for a few minutes to eat it, they would get two marshmallows. Preschoolers who managed to resist the urge to gobble up the marshmallow now for a bigger fluffy treat, later ended up scoring high on the side as the teenagers as a finding that's been replicated recently. When I first watched the videos of the marshmallow test, I was expecting to see a subset of kids that' superior with superior willpower. When I saw instead of, uh, was, when I saw instead was kids creating bits of scaffolding to remove the need for willpower. Some covered their eyes or the marshmallow, others sat on their hands. One mushed the marshmallow into a ball and bounced it, turning it into a toy. They had improved uh, they have they had improvised their own forms of deliberate play. That's what Brandon Payne did for Steph Curry. The early marshmallow research assumed that delaying gratification is a sign of discipline, the capacity to prioritize long-term goals over a short-term rewards, but a recent publication suggests that waiting for the extra marshmallow may be an even stronger signal of, support, of social support. Kids raised in more nurturing environments may be more likely to trust the experiment, experimenter to deliver on the promise of a reward. Disproportionately, the kids who succumb to the immediate goey delight come from socio economically disadvantaged families. When you grow up in a world of scarcity and uncertainty, you can't count on a bigger reward coming later. For the love of practice, Brandon has been training Curry for over a decade now. He told me he began with a basic principle there is no, bo- uh, there is no boring in our workouts. He set up the scaffolding to make the hardest parts of practice easier to help Curry make more progress while relying less on sheer discipline. To make practice fun while building the technical skills, Brandon created a menu of deliberate play activities. In 21, you get a minute to score 21 points with three pointers, jump shots and layups. But after each shot, you have to sprint in the middle of the court and back getting out of breath during that game stim- simulates the fatigue of the real game. Every drill is a game, Brandon explains there's always a time to beat. There's always a number to beat. If you beat the number and you don't beat the time, you still lose. The downside of competing against others is that you can win without improving. They might have a bad day or you might benefit from a stroke of good luck. In Brandon's form of deliberate play, the person you are competing with is your past self and the bar you are raising is for your future self you are not aiming for perfect, you are shooting for better, the only way to win is to grow I assumed it would be ideal to practice one skill until you make progress and and, and only then move to the next one but rather than repeating the same challenges over and over, Brandon mixes them up at 20 minute intervals, Brandon has curry bouncing from the shooting and quickness challenge to another. The variety isn't just motivating, it's also better for learning. Hundreds of experiments show that people improve faster when they alternate alternate between different skills. Psychologists call it interleaving and it works in arenas ranging from painting to math, especially when the skills being developed are similar or complex. Even small tweaks like shifting between thinner and thicker paintbrushes or slightly adjusting the weight of a basketball can make a big difference deliberate play is a particularly valuable for transforming the grind of summer practice when there is a multiple games per week many athletic, many athletes have little trouble staying motivated in the off season though it's easy to lose interest after rising star luca doncic showed up to the preseason out of shape he started training with brandon and dropped weight while gaining speed unless you are playing pickup summers are sometimes long The workouts can become a little monotonous if you let them steph curry told a reporter deliberate play creates a game-like situation with pressure he said which means you have to stay locked in and focused over a decade of training curry realized his hidden potential what he lacks in size at six feet two inches and 185 pounds he now makes it an explosiveness as well as accuracy he gives much of the credit to the deliberate play that Brandon organizes it, brings harmonious passion into practice, and he gets more out of out of it because of his determination. He loves the process. That's one of the things that ties all the great athletes together. Curry's long-time coach Steve Kerr observes that's a routine, but it's really enjoyed each day. There's a passion that comes with it, and that's what sustains it over time. When you love something like those guys, do, you work at it, you get better at it, and you just keep going. Although it may not turn you into a professional athlete, deliberate play can amplify your motivation and accelerate your development, one day I saw a video of a YouTuber who followed Steph Curry's training regime for two hours a day. At the start, he made only 8% of his three pointers. Over 50 days of deliberate play, he traveled a great distance, making 40% of those same shots. It's clear that deliberate play can spark and sustain harmonious passion. But can that passion be maintained over the long periods of time? Evelyn Glennie thinks. So she's felt it for half a century. She knows what research shows even deliberate play shouldn't be done all day, every day. She learned this lesson the hard way. You won't want toxic cultures, you need one good cultures, you want one vibrant cultures. Give me a break, I first saw Evelyn play in 2012 during the opening ceremony of the Olympics to build a crescendo. She was invited to lead a thousand drummers standing in front of an array of multi-drums. She progressed from rhythmic taps to rapid pounds. And the stadium crackled with energy later when a gold medalist entered the stadium carrying the olympic torch evelyn introduced the world to a new sound on an instrument she helped design the glennie concert aluphone. it looked like a set of the mushroom shaped bells and she struck it with four mallets it sounded like a warner more uplifting version of orchestral chimes i had no idea She had a physical disability, let alone one that prevented her from hearing the music she made. Back when L. Villain was a teenager auditioning for the Royal Academy of Music, the experts on the panel simply didn't believe a deaf girl could become a professional musician. She challenged them to pay attention to the caliber of the performance rather than the importance of the person delivering it. After a second audition, the Academy didn't just admit her, they ended up changing the rules for the entire United Kingdom to evaluate applicants on their musical skills, not their physical abilities. As a full-time music student at the Academy, Evelyn loved to practice. She started off playing two or three hours a day, but it wasn't long before she felt the pressure to take on more. When she saw her peers putting in longer hours, she noticed a sense of compulsion creeping into her mind. She asked herself how long she should be practicing and wondered if she should practice more. She started waking up an hour earlier and practicing later into the evening, but the feeling of obligation sucked the playful rhythm out of percussion and she saw her creativity and progress evaporate with it. She began to realize that there was such a thing as over-practice. To make sure music didn't become a grind, she decided to take regular breaks. It turns out that taking breaks at... Taking breaks has at least three benefits first time away from practice helps to sustain harmonious passion research indicates that even micro breaks of five to ten minutes are enough to reduce fatigue and raise energy it's not just about preventing burnout research reveals that when we work nights and weekends our interest and enjoyment in our tasks drop Even just reminding you that it's a Saturday, it's enough to reduce your intrinsic motivation, you realize that you could be doing something fun and relaxing instead. Yo-Yo Ma limits his practice in between 3 and 6 hours a day and strives to avoid early morning and late night sessions. Chopin urged his students not to practice more than 2 hours a day in the summer. Second, breaks unlock fresh ideas. In my own research with Jihei Shin, I found that taking breaks boosts creativity and you feel harmonious passion towards a task. Your interest keeps the problem active on the back of your mind. You are more likely to incubate new ways of framing it and unexpected ways of solving it. Lin-Manuel Miranda dreamed of his blockbuster musical hamilton while daydreaming on vacation sitting on a pool float with a margarita in his hand it's way beethoven Shaikovsky and Mahler all regularly took walks nearly as long as their work days third breaks deep in learning and one experiment taking a 10 minute break after learning something improved recall for students by 10 to 30 percent or even more for stroke and Alzheimer's patients. Once about 40-24 hours have passed, information starts to wait from our memories. We fall down a forgetting curve. It's well established that we can avoid that forgetting curve with spaced repetition interspersing breaks into practice. At first, you might practice once an hour and then start taking longer breaks until you're practicing once a day. Obsession leads us to see rest as taking a foot off the gas pedal. We don't stop until we have pushed ourselves to the edge of exhaustion. It's a price to pay for excellence. Under harmonious passion, it's easier to reorganize that rest is a supply of fuel. We take regular reprives to maintain energy and avoid burnout. Relaxing is not a waste of time, it's an investment in well-being. Breaks are not a distraction, they are a chance to reset attention and incubate ideas. Play is not a frivolous activity, it's a source of joy and a path to mastery. If you watch Evelyn today, you will see that she ex- she exudes the same joy of practicing alone as she expresses performing in front of the entire world. But she rarely practices in more than 20, 20 minutes interval before taking a break. Sometimes I feel like I really want to pick up a pair of sticks and to do something and the other times I think, no, I just want to sit here and stare at the walls. Other times I might want to write a little something in my notebook or read a good book. She tells me that when she loses interest or focus, she just stops playing altogether. Worthwhile practice is where progress is made. It's about quality, not quantity. You need to feel there's a shift. Something is different when you walk out of the room. Not long ago, a mother contacted Evelyn for a consultation, after going through a series of music exams, her daughter had lost interest in practicing the violin. The mother was hop- hoping Evelyn would give her a pep talk and motivate her to keep practicing. Instead, Evelyn improvised some deliberate play. She challenged the girl to play pieces backward, to come up with ten ways to, s- ten ways not to play the violin, and to incorporate sounds from her favorite TV show and her favorite animal. The girl left the session beaming. Before her practice time was focused on an outcome of being judged, Evelyn says deliberate play taught her that the real outcome is her enjoyment. Without enjoyment, potential stays hidden.